Well, happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Isn't it amazing that we still have the opportunity to gather together here online on this Easter Sunday, 2020. I've loved hearing and having the opportunity to hear people from our community share what they've been learning, what they believe God has been teaching them. And then for us to be able to see each and every single one of their faces as they've sent that in. And we're going to continue doing that. One thing that I have been missing from our Sunday gatherings is our opportunity to have corporate prayer. And many of you will know that we usually have one person stand up and they offer a prayer for our community. Somebody that does that for us is named Jan Johnson. And Jan and her husband, Glenn, they don't have cell phones or computers. But I really wanted to figure out a way to get Jan to do our corporate prayer. And so I called her this week and figured out a way for myself to record our phone call. And so here is Jan Johnson praying for us and offering our corporate prayer. Our Heavenly Father, on this glorious Easter morning, we praise your great name because Jesus, your Son, was crucified three days earlier. He took all our sins with him, but Lord, in dying, Jesus gave us life. Through his death came everlasting life. Through apparent defeat came victory. The wonder of the resurrection is a beautiful reminder of God's gift of love. Help us to focus on what you have already done, Jesus, died for our sins, what you are doing, living in us, and what you will do, take us home to heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a promise for every problem. Trials of life are sent to make us and not to break us. Abba Father, Help us to be on the lookout for miracles, for we know when Christ, like goodness, meets with worldly disasters, this creates conditions that are ready for your powerful intervention. Almighty God, help us not to be discouraged in this pandemic. We know you walk beside those who trust in you in the daily trials of COVID-19. We believe there is power in Jesus that can make us victors in these trying times. Lord, your way is perfect. You are a shield to all who believe in you. Father, we know because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can have courage to face COVID-19. You strengthen the hearts of all who hope in you. Holy Spirit, thank you for touching the hearts of many people to be generous in giving at this time to supply food for frontline workers, to help deliver groceries to the needy, and to encourage workers in the long-term care facilities and hospitals. Father, we pray you will put a hedge of protection around all of them and around our most vulnerable citizens, the elderly and people with devastating health issues. Heavenly Father, we pray that everyone will heed the words of the health officials so that COVID-19 cases will recede. We pray everyone will practice social distancing, self-isolation, and self-quarantine. Holy Spirit, stop those who are violating these restrictions and make them realize how harmful their actions are to everyone. Thank you, Lord, for companies that have equipped themselves to make ventilators instead of 
their usual product. Thank you for people across the country who are sewing masks. Their work is invaluable. Father, thank you for doctors, scientists, and lab technicians who are constantly and earnestly working to find a cure for the virus. Give them wisdom and insight into how this disease can be controlled and eradicated. Father, help all government officials to plan ahead, not to hesitate in making sure medical supplies and testing materials for the virus are being ordered. Thank you for our government plans to help people who can't work because their companies are not in essential service. Father, the world is going through tough times and circumstances which are painful and extremely difficult and deadly. Many people are without a belief in Christ and they're experiencing loneliness and hopelessness. Holy Spirit, touch their hearts so they will reach out to God, our Good Shepherd, and know they can believe and trust that you, Lord, are in control and are with us in their struggles. Thank you, Lord, that you strengthen our hearts. We ask for patience at this time to look ahead to the day when we can meet with our brothers and sisters of Church of the City to worship and honor your holy name. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, Church, if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to John chapter 5, verse 19 to 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may be marvel, may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who, ha who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks and praise be to God. I want to ask you a question. Who is Jesus? It's a question I posed when we went through the first section, the prologue of John's gospel, verses 1 to 18. And in that message, I asked the question and I, I said, I said, who is Jesus? And then I said, it's likely one of the most important questions that you and I will ever answer. Now you might say, well, why is it the most important question that I might ever answer? And the reason for that is, is because based upon who you define Jesus to be will dictate how much authority he has in your life 
Who you believe Jesus to be will define and dictate how much authority he actually has in your life. For example, you might not be a follower of Jesus, and so you might think of the historical figure of Jesus as a good moral teacher, or you have friends that are Christians that seem to focus a lot about Jesus, but you don't define him how Christians do. And Christians have defined Jesus as being God in flesh, the Son of God in human form, who came to this earth to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we should have died, then come came back to life, which is what we celebrate today on Resurrection Easter Sunday. And then we believe, and then he ascended to heaven, and we believe that one day Jesus will return to restore and to remake all of creation. And so therefore, who we believe Jesus to be defines the level of authority that he has in our lives. Now, part of my story, my, my story of coming to have faith and to trust in Jesus, I grew up in a home. Uh, my parents are followers of Jesus, and they taught me the ways of Jesus. And very early on, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. In other words, I trusted him to save me from my sins, but I was really slow to give him the lordship or to make him king in my life to give him my allegiance, to for me to actually trust him. And it wasn't until I graduated high school and was in my first year of university that I actually submitted myself to him, believing that he wasn't just savior, but that he was Lord and that he was God. And that was a pretty defining moment for me. And maybe for you, you can think about one of those moments, or maybe for you, that moment will come. Now, the reason that I'm asking this question about who we believe Jesus is, is that today on Easter Sunday, we're thinking a lot about Jesus. We're thinking about his resurrection. And if you have questions and trying to define for yourself who Jesus is, well, why don't we start by asking the question, who did Jesus believe himself to be? Who did Jesus believe himself to be? And who did Jesus claim that he was? Now, last week we studied uh, two healing stories at the end of John chapter four and then beginning of John chapter 15. In the beginning of John chapter 15, Jesus heals a man, and we find out that he heals this man on the Sabbath day. And when Jesus heals him, he's a, he's a lame man, an invalid. Jesus says, go, take up your bed, and walk. And we find out just a few verses later that he does it on the Sabbath, which immediately raises some opposition from Jewish leaders. And they're upset because Jesus has, one, healed somebody on the Sabbath day, but then secondly... What he did was he commanded this man to pick up his bed and walk, which was something that they restricted people from doing on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus answers them. He kind of provides his initial defense for why he commanded this man to pick up his bed and walk and why he was permitted to work on the Sabbath day. And we find this in verse 15 of John chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. This is what Jesus said. My father is working until now. And I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. What is Jesus saying? Well, firstly, he's referring to God as his father. He's saying that he has a unique relationship with God, that God is his father, as referring to him, my father. He then says that his father is working until now. It was a common belief uh, amongst the Jews that God uh, unlike them, was continuously working, even on the Sabbath. They believed that if God stopped working, that the world would go into chaos. And so God was permitted to work on the Sabbath day. So what Jesus is saying, he says, my father is continuously working because he needs to keep care and concern over his creation. And then he says, and I am working. In other ways, he's saying, 
the universe and all that is in it, I also need to keep working so that I can keep things in order and out of chaos. Now, if any of us were to be confused about what Jesus is claiming here, uh, we should just look at the, the response of the Jewish leaders. This is how they respond in verse 18 of chapter 5. They say, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So do you see their issue with Jesus? He's, he's done something. He's worked on the Sabbath. He then is saying he has a unique relationship with God as his father. But at the same time, he's making himself equal with God. He's saying, I am an equal with God. And they are upset. They're seeking all the more to kill him. They believe that he's committed blasphemy. They say, you can't think that way. You can't say those sorts of things. Now, maybe you are in the position of one, like one of these Jewish leaders, and Jesus can teach, he can be a good moral teacher, but he certainly is not God. Let's see how Jesus responds to these Jewish leaders and how he responds to each of us. Because what he's going to do here in the next section of verses is begin to set up and create a defense to share and to show who he really is. Now, what he does in the first section of verses, verses 19 to 29, is he focuses and he begins by focusing on his unique relationship with God, his father, and on the unity that he and the father share or the oneness that they share. Go with me to these verses. Let's start at verse 19. And he's going to focus on three unique things in particular between him and, and the father God. The first thing is activity. We see this in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that he can do only what the father does that he and the father share as the father has given him activity to do. And he is only doing what the father has commanded him to do. And the father gives it to him because the father loves him and reveals these things to him as his son. There's another focus of some of the things that the father does that Jesus then claims to do. Look with me at verse 21. Jesus claims, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Do you see what Jesus is claiming? Jesus is claiming that he has the power given to him by the father to bring a person to life. It's crazy. What else does he do? What other activity of the father does he say that he can do that the father has given him? Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. So not only does Jesus, the son, have the power to give life, he's also claiming that the father has given him the role to be the judge, to judge life. Think about what Jesus is claiming here. He's saying, I can do nothing on my own. I do only what the father has done. And those things that I do are the activity of the father. This is the uniqueness of his relationship with God, the father, and also their oneness. He goes on, though, with another characteristic of their unity and the uniqueness of his relationship with the Father. Verse 23, 
that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Do you see the second reality of this unique relationship between the father and Jesus? Jesus is saying the same honor that is due the father is the same honor that is due me. And when you honor the father, you honor me. And when you honor me, you honor the father. He goes on with another unique aspect of their relationship, a third one, it's power. And what Jesus does in verses 25 to 29 is he claims that he has a power that only the father has. Now you might say, well, what is that power? And we see here, Jesus define it. It's salvation power, the power to grant and to give salvation. We see it first of salvation in the present. In verse 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is saying that he has the power to give life and salvation in the present. But look, he also says that he has given the power to grant and to give salvation in the future. In verse 27, we read, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And then he goes on to say, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of the life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is claiming that as God the Son, he has the power to grant life and then also to bring judgment. Both in the present, that as we learned last week, that we are we need spiritual healing so Jesus can give us spiritual healing. He can restore our broken relationship with God. But then in the future, when he returns, that he will call those that are his who have trusted in him to himself. And there will be then judgment on those who have not trusted in Christ. Now, as we come to the end of this first section of verses, I want us to pause and to think for a moment how the Jewish leaders would have been responding I mean, think about yet again what Jesus is saying here. I mean, they say they see him as a traveling rabbi, a, a teacher that has performed some miracles. But here Jesus is claiming that he is equal with God and he has a unique relationship with this God who he's calling his father. At this point, they, they have to be feeling and thinking like he's a liar. He's not telling the truth. Either that or he's a lunatic. In other words, he's absurd. And maybe you are somebody and you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You are forced to really confront what I have just shared and what we read in the scriptures to ask the question, is Jesus in fact telling the truth? Does he, does he actually do the same things that the father does in activity? Should he receive the same honor that God does? Does he actually have the power to give and grant salvation and to judge the earth? We're forced to ask this question as we see that these are the things that Jesus says. Now, some of us might be saying, well, <laughs> he's a liar. He's a lunatic. Certainly the Jews at the time were saying, well, anybody can make up any story they want about themselves. We need to hear other people, other witnesses to corroborate his story, to agree with him. And this is where Jesus goes in the next section of verses, where he actually identifies four witnesses that validate his claim. Let's look at verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. 
and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see what he's saying again? He's saying, I seek the will of the Father. We work together. We do not work separately. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my, my testimony is not true. He says, if I'm the only one that has testified to these things, I could see that you could understand that that would not be true. But look what he says. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, he's certainly speaking of God, his father, who bears testimony about him. But let's look at the four witnesses that then Jesus claims and mentions as people that also point to the fact that he is, in fact, God, the son and equal with God. Verse 33. So who are the witnesses? You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Who is this first witness that Jesus says also testifies to him being who he says he is? John the Baptist. John the Baptist sent who came before Jesus to prepare the way of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is challenging these religious leaders and he's saying, you believed him for a while. You believed him when he said that a Messiah was coming. But as soon as he identified that Messiah as me is when you stopped believing. So Jesus points us to the witness of John the Baptist. He then goes on to his next witness, witness number two, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The second witness that Jesus points to are his signs, are his miracles, are his works. If we think back to Jesus transforming water into wine, we think of the healing at the end of chapter four, Jesus healing a boy at a distance, him being in Cana and the boy being in Capernaum. And then if we look at Jesus's life, which would take him to his eventual death and his resurrection, these are the works that Jesus has been sent to do. And so Jesus says, look at the things that I'm doing. These should be testimony and witness enough that I am actually sent by the father. The third witness, verse 37, and the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have not seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. The third witness that Jesus claims also believe, agrees with him in his testimony about himself is God the father, is God, Yahweh. He says, God has testified that I am the promised Messiah. But to disregard that Jesus is the son and not the Messiah, what Jesus is saying is that, well, clearly then, if you don't believe that the father has spoken this way about me, then one, you have not heard his voice. Two, you have not seen his form. And thirdly, certainly his word does not dwell or abide within you. Now think about, sort of the burn that this is to these Jewish leaders, people that study the scriptures repeatedly. Jesus saying that the word of God does not dwell in you because you're not willing to accept the one that he has sent myself. Then there is a fourth witness that Jesus mentions in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The fourth witness that Jesus claims that testify to him being the Messiah and the promised one are the scriptures. 
And Jesus is saying, listen, look, look at the scriptures. They testify to the need that we have for a savior, for a Messiah, for a rescuer, that the Jewish people need a rescuer and Messiah, that humanity needs a rescuer and a Messiah. I am that Messiah. I am that person that has come. And so four witnesses, John the Baptist, the works and signs of Jesus, God the Father, and the scriptures. Now, again, for some of us sitting here, we say, okay, Jesus has made a point about who he says he is. Okay, there's some witnesses to the fact of who Jesus claims to be. I'm still not convinced. And Jesus goes on, and what he ends with are claims regarding the consequences of people not believing in him. He says, okay, this is who I am. These are the witnesses to it. Now he says, here are the consequences of not believing who I am, who I say I am. The first consequence, if we go back to 38 and to verse 40, say this, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What's the first consequence? Jesus says, you won't understand the scriptures. The very, the very words that you are studying to the Jewish leaders, he's saying this, you're not going to understand because they point to me. And unless you receive and accept me, you're not going to understand the scriptures. Your love for the scriptures transcends your love for me and for God. And that's the second consequence is that they cannot love God. Look at what it says in verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will not receive him. Do you see what Jesus is saying as the second consequence? He says, if you don't receive me, and grow to love me, you certainly do not love God because I'm the one whom God has sent. So you cannot have the love of God in you. To love God, you would also love me. There's a third consequence. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not see the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, as the consequence, you will not honor God because you're so focused on honoring people. He's saying the consequence of not believing who I am is that you're not going to ultimately honor God because you're so concerned with, with trying to prove that I am not who I say I am to be approved of by your peers that you're not actually going to receive me. And this was a huge challenge to the Jewish leaders who at the pa in the past had, had believed in false messiahs because in their minds, those false messiahs sort of fit the mold of what they believed the messiah was going to come to do. And Jesus completely flips the tables on who they believe them what, or what they believe the messiah is going to be like. And here Jesus says is, listen, if you're not willing to honor me, you certainly will not honor God. And if you're not willing for your perspective to be changed about who the messiah is, and what the Messiah came to do and the way that he came to do it, you're not going to ultimately honor God. But then there's a fourth consequence. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The, the fourth consequence is ultimately that these Jewish leaders will face judgment. They'll face the consequences of not trusting in Jesus for their, for their salvation. Jesus points them to Moses, who they believe the testimony and witness of. And what Jesus claims is that Moses was actually testifying to me. Moses was, the things he was saying were pointing forward to me. And so if you don't trust Moses' words, how are you ever going to trust me? But if you don't trust me, your life will be liable to judgment. If you don't receive the gift of grace that I have come to give, you will face judgment on the last day. Now, the question that I have for every single one of us is yet again, who is Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is some crazy liar, lunatic, who's absurd, who had no understanding of reality? Or maybe you believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Maybe you'd believe that Jesus was a prophet. All of those things are options, of course. But if we look at the text here, Jesus claims to be equal with God. He claims to be God himself, the son of God, who God has, the father has sent to be a sacrifice, to be the rescuer, to save us from our sins. And on Good Friday, we celebrated and remembered the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. And today, Christians, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus did not stay dead. Which then brings us to the next question. What do you do with the resurrection? Now, some of you might say, well, the res that's not impossible. The resurrection did not happen. Okay. But then what do you do about the eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus? We have both historical witness from the historian Josephus to the risen Christ. We're told in the scriptures there were over 500 that witnessed the risen Christ. So what do you do with the historical fact of the resurrection? Because here's the thing. Jesus said that he would die and three days later rise from the dead. Now, go with me. It's sort of a thought experiment. If there was somebody today who claimed that they would die and come back three days later and that happened, would you not listen to them? Or would you not do a second look? Yet Jesus does this. He claimed that he would die and three days later come back to life. And Christians celebrate the resurrection because we believe as the scriptures teach us that in the resurrection that we are promised resurrected life that Jesus bore the cost of our sin upon himself on the cross. And then three days later, sin was defeated when he came back to life. That the guilt and the shame and the punishment of our sin was taken care of. And that Jesus came back to life. And Jesus said that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And when we trust in Jesus, we have joy, we have hope for the future. We can get through times like this coronavirus, this COVID-19, and we can know that ultimately we will spend eternity with Jesus, that right now we live on this side of restoration, but also this side of redemption, knowing what Jesus has done for us. And so we can trust Christ. Each and every single one of us must face the consequences of our decision. And so like the Jewish leaders who Jesus challenges and says, listen, this is who I am. These are the witnesses that testify to it. And here are the consequences if you do not. I want to challenge you to consider today the consequences of not believing Jesus 
the consequences of not believing who Jesus claimed to be and what Jesus claimed that he came to do, which is to save you and I from our sin so that we can spend eternity in heaven and not face judgment and eternity apart from God, facing God's wrath. That God showed his love and his mercy to us in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection sealed our hope for life eternal of forgiveness and of his immeasurable, endless grace. If you have never committed your life to trusting and believing in Jesus, I wanna invite you on this Easter Sunday, 2020, to do that. And that begins with confessing and saying, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am separated from God. But I thank you that you have come and that you have done for me what I could not do for myself and given me eternal life. I want to trust you now for hope, for meaning, for security, and for joy. If you would like to talk to somebody about making that decision, we'd invite you to email us at info at churchofthecity.ca, or maybe you have a friend through here on Facebook who you know is part of the Church of the City community, and I would encourage you to talk to them about your decision to follow Jesus, trusting and believing Jesus for who he said he was, because that's what Christians believe, that Jesus was who he says he was, and that he came to do completely what he said he came to do. I want you to hear another story this morning of someone who'd experienced that life change in Christ and committed their life to following Jesus. I want to close our time today reading 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 to 58. This is what it says. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So may we celebrate today understanding the hope that we have in Christ, that we would be unmovable and unshakable in the foundation of Christ and his resurrection. And might we go and love those that God has placed in our life and offer them the same hope that he has given to us by sharing with them the good news of Jesus. I want to invite you to join our prayer time. Uh, rather than waiting until 12 today, it's going to be immediately following the end of this reunion online. You can find the Zoom link on our website, or you can find it if you're watching this through Facebook in the comment section. You are loved, and let's continue to pray in Guelph as it is in heaven.